understand that the nightmare scenario of GOP court packing is already upon us. That's how they got this far-right 6-3 majority in the first place. Yep, it is. What you gonna do about it, Democrats? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Gonna do anything? I got the feeling that something ain't right. Anything at all? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing, Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from brandblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Just in case you thought it uh, possible that things could not get any more insane in this country of late. A. What are you thinking? B. What are you smoking? C. Can I have some of it? And... (laughs) Uh, I guess D, hey, 79-year-old President Biden has tested positive for COVID. Everything's going great, ain't it? Fantastic. Welcome to the broadcast, where it just keeps getting better all the time. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. I detect some sarcasm there. I don't know what you're talking about. President Joe Biden tested positive for COVID-19 on Thursdays, isolating with, quote, very mild symptoms. According to the White House, as new variants of the highly contagious virus challenge the nation's efforts to get back to normal after two and a half years of pandemic. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said Biden had begun taking Paxlovid, an antiviral drug, to reduce the severity of the disease. He was isolating in the family quarters of the White House and, quote, continuing to carry out all his duties fully. She said his physician said in a letter that Biden had a runny nose and, quote, fatigue with an occasional dry cough, which started yesterday evening. Biden himself said in a video posted on Twitter, quote, I really appreciate your concern, your inquiries and concerns, but I'm doing well, getting a lot of work done. Biden is fully vaccinated after getting two doses of the Pfizer Vaccine shortly before taking office, a first booster shot in September of last year, 
and an additional dose in March of this year. The president will isolate for five days and can return to his usual activities after a negative test, according to the White House COVID-19 coordinator at a briefing. After more than two years and over a million deaths in the U.S., the virus is still killing an average of 353 people a day. Here in the U.S., according to the CDC, the unvaccinated are still at far greater risk, more than twice as likely to test positive and nine times as likely to die from the virus as those who have received at least a primary dose of the vaccines. According to the CDC, the highly transmissible Omicron variant is the dominant strain right now in the U.S. Scientists say it poses, however, a lower risk for severe illness to those who are up to date on their vaccinations. Omicron's BA5 substrain, believed to be even more contagious than the original, now makes up more than 65 percent of all U.S. cases. And I should note, it is quickly rising in almost all 50 states. It is still a deadly disease, especially for the elderly. And so on that note, we wish the 79-year-old president a speedy recovery. New York Congressman Bill Pascrell yesterday on Twitter cited new polling out from Marquette University's law school, noting that, quote, in less than two years, Public trust in the extremist Republican Supreme Court has collapsed. More evidence, he says, we must expand and balance the court. Well, first, uh, isn't it nice that I'm not the only one calling them extremist anymore? <laughs> yes, it is. Glad but we uh, gl- could add radical, though, to that. Oh, as well. oh, I could add a whole list, but it's only an hour show. And it is FCC radio. So. Yeah, that too. Uh, but I am glad everyone else has started to notice, at least some have started to notice, how radical and extremist this Republican court has now uh, become. This uh, new polling that Pascrell is citing finds approval of the court has plummeted from 66% in September of 2020 to just 38% last week, less than two years later. They've gone from a 66-33 approval in 2020 in the Marquette poll to 38-61 disapproval. So pretty much a complete flip from just two years ago. That comes on the heels of recent polling by Gallup that sort of confirms this, finding confidence in the court to be at an all-time low since their polling on this question began in the 1970s. So, yeah, in about uh, half a century. While uh, Americans clearly have lost confidence in the illegitimate court, packed with a stolen 6-3 supermajority by Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, During his term in office, only after McConnell changed the number of justices on the court for more than a year by refusing the seat uh, to fill the seat left vacant by uh, the death of Antonin Scalia. And he did that all by himself. Yep. And also only after they nuked the Senate filibuster to seat all three of Donald Trump's nominee nominees with a, a simple majority vote. So after all of that, do Americans yet see expansion of the court as a solution? Perhaps more importantly, does Congress and the president, who actually have the power to do exactly that, to expand the court if they so choose to exercise 
that right. Uh, do they see that as necessary now? No constitutional amendment necessary to do it, by the way. Well, now a number of Democrats in Congress are renewing their push for exactly that this week. We will be joined momentarily by the executive director of the nonprofit Take Back the Court group. They're working uh, with some of those folks in Congress. We'll find out if maybe, just maybe, the overturning of Roe v. Wade last month, along with all of the other damage that they did, might finally kick Democrats into gear to get something done on this front, since, you know, only the fate of the free world and the entire planet is at stake. That's all. On our next broadcast, of course, we will have full special coverage of Thursday night's primetime public hearing by the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee investigating Trump's January 6th insurrection and his many other attempts to steal the 2020 election. Thursday night is hearing number eight, and in theory, the last one of the panel's summer series of blockbusters, <laughs> uh, though the uh, committee has suggested there could be more of them coming in the fall. The uh, first one was also a primetime hearing, and it was famously not carried live by Fox News, who ran Tucker Carlson's show instead that night without commercials so that viewers would not change the channel during the commercial to learn the truth that was available on pretty much every other legitimate cable news and major broadcast outlet. Thereafter, Fox did carry the daytime hearings. Uh, it's unknown as we go to air this hour whether Fox will carry Thursday's primetime hearings or not, given all the news that the seven prior hearings uh, have made. Um, so uh, we will see. But, uh, you know, those uh, hearings will be covering the minute by minute failure of Donald Trump for more than three hours to take any action as the Capitol was being attacked by thousands of his supporters, many of them armed. But of course, Fox is not the only so-called news network pretending to be a news network by not actually covering the, uh, you know, news. As AP misdescribes them, a conservative TV channel. Oh, my goodness. That's way too generous. A conservative TV channel is presenting viewers with a, quote, alternate universe of how the deadly siege at the U.S. Capitol unfolded on January 6th, according to a new research report. Well, at least they didn't call them a news channel. They called them a TV channel. So there's that, even if they called them conservative which Newsmax is not. Newsmax is a right-wing Republican, yes, extremist TV channel, not conservative. In any event, Newsmax has broadcast at least 40 false claims or conspiracy theories about the attack since June, just last month, when the House committee began televising its evidence about the role that Donald Trump and his allies played in the day's events on January 6th. That, according to NewsGuard, which monitors misinformation, their analyst Jack Brewster said of the group's findings, quote, if, you watch, if you're watching Newsmax, you may come away with an entirely different feeling of what happened at the hearings and what happened on January 6th. Many of the falsehoods presented by anchors, reporters, and guests who include Republican members of Congress have been repeatedly debunked, according to this report. Anchors and guests have claimed that there were only a few hundred rioters 
or and or that they were, quote, unarmed, despite photos taken from that day and federal charges that show uh, many were, in fact, armed with guns and used pepper spray and flagpoles carved into spears. And they had stun guns as weapons, also knives and brass knuckles and much more. But other than that, unarmed, just a few hundred. Oh, the Department of Justice estimates at least 2,000 people entered the U.S. Capitol, not just a few hundred. And last month, uh, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson testified that Trump himself had been informed protesters were armed with weapons, including firearms. Another false claim, apparently, uh, that Trump ordered national... Oh, this is one we hear a lot, that Trump ordered National Guards to the scene only to be blocked by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) That's so absurd. Apparently that was repeated 11 times since the uh, committee began its hearings on June 9. Uh, This uh, misinformation was proven false more than a year ago, if only because Nancy Pelosi does not direct the National Guard. So if Donald Trump had actually wanted to order them to the Capitol, he absolutely could have. The false claims broadcast on the Trump-friendly Newsmax echo the misleading defenses regularly offered by Donald Trump himself, what do you know, Uh, as well as his allies, about the violence at the Capitol. Newsmax, of course, is also named in a defamation lawsuit brought by voting machine maker Dominion. Uh, after Newsmax's claims that uh, the election was fraudulent and stolen from Trump, through the company's electronic voting and tabulation systems, despite any, despite all the lack of evidence uh, to support that charge. Newsmax, which is incredibly available on most cable, satellite, and streaming services, along with Fox News, along with that other one, oh, what is it, OAN? Uh, yes, America's One News American Network, News. or whatever the hell it is. That's watched, uh, Newsmax is watched by about 200,000 viewers a day. The uh, Brewster, who has been monitoring misinformation around the January 6th hearing, said that Newsmax has most regularly aired falsehoods about the insurrection compared to other conservative TV channels. So Newsmax, uh, hey, they're number one at something. Lying to the public, I guess, about January 6th. Brewster said, I was shocked by the durability of these claims. These are false claims that are not new. A lot of them have been repeated ad nauseum and, of course, long ago debunked by legitimate sources of actual news. You know, like here on the broadcast. Uh, By the way, Newsmax has not live streamed the hearings. And in a June press release, they described them as, quote, political theater. As noted, full special coverage of that political theater on our next broadcast. But if we can't even get AP to stop calling these uh, outlets conservative, well, what are the chances that they or any of the other corporate media outlets will stop describing expansion of the Supreme Court as packing the Supreme Court? I will ask that question and many others to my guest from Take Back the Court momentarily as the nation and Congress sort of reels from last month's unprecedented, yes, extremist actions by the not conservative in the least U.S. Supreme Court majority. That and our latest grim 
Green News Report yep. are all ahead on today's <laughs> broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by Bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. going down well no not of none of we the people have anything to say about it welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com i don't know if we the people do but we the people will try following the stunning overturning of roe v wade by our corrupt extremist activist not conservative in the least republican supreme court majority uh, there is now a push by grassroots Democrats being led in part by the folks over at Talking Points Memo to get Democrats in the Senate on the record to commit to reforming the filibuster in order to pass a federal statute to codify Roe v. Wade in all 50 states, to codify the rights and freedoms previously guaranteed. By Roe. The campaign hopes to get all 48 senators who caucus with the Democrats and who are not named Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, who have already made clear that they will protect the filibuster, not the American voters, to get all 48 of the other Democratic senators on record right now to commit to reforming the undemocratic 60 vote filibuster rule in the Senate so that they can then codify with a simple majority vote the privacy and reproductive rights thought to have been constitutionally guaranteed at the heart of the 50 year old Roe ruling. To do that, of course, all 48 non-mansion and non-cinema Democratic senators need to commit to doing so if voters give them Two more Democratic senators this November as needed to vote to change the filibuster. And if they can hold on to their majority in the U.S. House, well, that is a promise that they could make to the voters. Give us those two extra Democrats in the Senate. Give us a majority in the House. And yes, come January, we will reform the filibuster and codify Roe. Now, of course, that is a lot of ifs. It is not an easy lift, but it is a doable one, particularly if Democrats wise up and take on this Roe and reform commitment to voters as a pledge in return for their support this November. In the meantime, as we discussed yesterday on the program, Democrats in the House are busy adopting legislation that would federally codify other long-established constitutional rights which are now at risk since the corrupt right-wing SCOTUS majority has determined that the privacy rights at the heart of Roe aren't actually constitutional rights at all. That means other long-standing rulings by the court are now similarly at risk of falling as corrupt Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas even called for in his concurring opinion when overturning Roe. 
the right to intimate relations with members of the same sex, the right to use contraception, the right to same-sex marriage, and even to interracial marriage is now on the chopping block, at least as far as Clarence Thomas is concerned. Though, for some reason, he Thomas did not call for demolishing interracial marriage, you know, for some reason in his concurrence. But yesterday on this program, we reported that the U.S. House had passed the Respect for Marriage Act, which codifies both same-sex marriage and interracial marriage into federal law. Whether it can be passed in the undemocratic U.S. Senate without reform of the filibuster, well, that's a separate matter. And on Thursday, the House voted 228 to 195 almost entirely along party lines, uh, to pass legislation to codify the right to contraception nationwide, seeking to protect it from potential Supreme Court intervention. The Right to Contraception Act would establish a right in federal law for individuals to obtain and use contraception, uh, contraceptives in all 50 states. Now, the need to pass either of these bills on marriage, on contraception until recently was largely unthinkable until the stolen and packed right wing majority on the high court made it not just thinkable, but ridiculously now absolutely critical, apparently, to codify these these rights into law. Only eight Republicans voted with all 220 Democrats on this bill. The Right to Contraception Act, incredibly enough, just eight of the House's 211 Republicans were willing to vote to keep contraception legal in the U.S. in 2022. Ignore these facts at your and I guess all of our peril. Two years ago, in 2020 on this program, as Republicans were packing their third Donald Trump nominee onto the Supreme Court to cement their 6-3 to supermajority, just eight days before that year's presidential election, and after having nuked the filibuster themselves for votes on lifetime appointments to the highest court in the land just two years earlier, we spoke with Aaron Belkin, president and founder of Take Back the Court, an organization founded in 2018 seeking to inform the public about the danger then that the Supreme Court posed to democracy itself and to call for court expansion as the only strategy to rebalance the court after its 2016 theft. Two years later, on Monday this week, a group of House Democrats called for legislation that would add four seats to the Supreme Court, lamenting the, quote, ultra-right-wing branch that just overturned Roe v. Wade. The eight Democratic lawmakers cited recent Supreme Court decisions, rolling back long-held Miranda rights, throwing out New York's Second Amendment right to well-regulate the concealed carry of firearms in their state, further eroding the long-standing constitutional separations of church and state, and even telling the Environmental Protection Agency that they have no right to protect the environment when it comes to carbon emissions, despite federal statute and even previous Supreme Court rulings mandating that they must. That, in addition, of course, to the Dobbs v. Jackson's women health decision that overturned the right to an abortion, making clear the necessity of adding new justices to the court to restore its balance and its legitimacy. 
Congressman Hank Johnson of Georgia, Democrat, the lead sponsor of the 2021 Judiciary Act, called the high court's current makeup, quote, a Supreme Court at crisis with itself and with our democracy, where basic freedoms are under assault, he noted, adding that the justices are uh, not susceptible to the popular vote the way that Congress is. And as Johnson argued, those justices have used their ill-gotten power to usurp the power of the legislative and executive branches. Michigan Congresswoman Rashid Tlaib spoke passionately about the necessity of reforming the court by expanding it. So we're going to stand here with the folks that have members, others, that believe in what we're trying to do, which is expand the court. Again, it's incredibly important. We must continue to protect our democracy that is reflective of the majority of the American people. And right now, six unhinged, unelected Supreme Court justice is literally telling women they have no control over their bodies. They're telling communities like mine they don't have a right to breathe clean air, that profits come before them and their public health and their lives. And so, again, it is so important that we move with urgency. My residents, I know many of our residents, they don't have another day, another year, another you know, term, another election to wait for transformative change. This is our time. We were in control. Let's act like it. Adding to the outrage, of course, is the fact that while Republicans decry changing the number of justices on the court, That has been done many times over the years, including in 2016, when then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did so himself unilaterally for more than a year, as New York Congressman Mondaire Jones pointed out at Monday's presser. To my colleagues who say that if we expand the court, Republicans may do it back at some indeterminate time in the future, Understand that the nightmare scenario of GOP court packing is already upon us. That's how they got this far-right 6-3 majority in the first place. Following the death of Antonin Scalia, Mitch McConnell and his Republican allies in the Senate left open Merrick Garland's seat for 14 months. And then they went back on their non-existent rule that they invented for cynical purposes, to rush through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett as a presidential election was already underway and as millions of votes had already been counted. Nonetheless, the bill being touted by these Democrats on Monday was actually introduced last year. And while votes on abortion and marriage rights and now contraception have made it to the House floor to be passed successfully by the Democratic majority, the Judiciary Act of 2021, as touted on Monday, has yet to receive a vote in the House or Senate, despite almost two years now of grassroots progressives and Democrats demanding this critical action. Why is that? And will that now change following the spate of unprecedented radical rulings by this corrupted high court at the end of its term last month? 
Joining us now to discuss that and much more is Executive Director of Take Back the Court, Sarah Lipton-Lubet, who has long worked against the right-wing takeover of our courts. Before joining Take Back the Court, she served at the American Civil Liberties Union, Center for Reproductive Rights and Natural Resources Defense Council, and has clerked for judges at both the U.S. District Court and Federal Court of Appeals. Sarah Lipton-Lubet, thank you for joining us today on the broadcast. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. So uh, before we get into why the Judiciary Act of 2021 has yet to come up for a vote in the democratically controlled House, much less the Senate, even at this point in 2022, uh, I know your group has long supported this bill. What exactly would it do and why uh, does your group believe it to be so critical right now? So came back to court was founded about four years ago to raise the alarm about the moment that we find ourselves in right now, right? We created this organization to press for Supreme Court expansion because we knew that democracy couldn't flourish or really even function if we had an illegitimate Supreme Court that was actively hostile to democracy, actively hostile to our fundamental rights, and that if we want to save our democracy, we have to act to unrig the system. Fast forward four years, and we are in that critical break glass moment right now. The Supreme Court term that we just saw, there hasn't been one like that in my lifetime, in Mm. my parents' lifetime. Yeah. And so the Judiciary Act has never been more necessary. That is the bill that would add four seats to the U.S. Supreme Court to rebalance it, to take power away from the extremists that are wielding it right now, and to restore the court's integrity. Now, I know Congress has changed the number of seats on the court, I believe, seven times in the nation's history. I don't think that includes when Mitch McConnell did it for those 14 months unilaterally. But uh, this uh, new proposal would bring the total seat count to 13. Is there a reason specifically that uh, that this bill pushes for 13 uh, justices? You're absolutely right that Congress has changed the size of the court multiple times in history before, seven times. And then, of course, again, uh, when McConnell and the Republicans did it unilaterally and and not through proper legislation. Mm -hmm. And that's because the size of the court is set by Congress. That's how the Constitution contemplated it. It's absolutely a legitimate exercise of Congress's power to do so now. And frankly, it's not just in their power. It's their responsibility to act when the court is so out of control. I've, we have 13... Oh, go no, ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead, please. We have 13 circuit courts of appeals in this country, mm-hmm. and the number of justices on the Supreme Court should match that at 13. That's the way things used to work um, before uh, before it got set at nine for the last long spell. Mm-hmm. But when that number was set, there were something like 38 million people living in the U.S. There is over 300 million now. You know, it makes no sense. Um, to keep that static. Uh, so just to be clear, you said that the Constitution leaves this to Congress. In other words, there is no barrier at all. We don't have to have a constitutional amendment, et cetera. There's no barrier to changing the number of seats on the court beyond simple passage of a bill by Congress and a signature by the president, correct? Exactly. So uh, what is your response then to... Um, 
those on the left who say, well, you know what, if we do this, there's nothing to prevent Republicans from expanding it yet again the next time they have control of both houses of Congress and and the White House. Uh, that sounds like that's true. So h- how do you respond to that? You know, I think we've seen time and again that Republicans will exercise maximum power Mm -hmm. uh, whenever they can, in whatever way they can, unless they think that someone will stop them, right? That's true no matter what Democrats do, right? As you already mentioned, Republicans already changed the size of the court to eight for a year while they blockaded Merrick Garland's nomination. So Republican power grabs, that's just a part of reality. (laughs) Given that, Isn't a world where we fight for what's right better than a world where we surrender unilaterally? You know, to folks who are worried about what Republicans might do in the future, I have to say I'm really worried about what they've done already Mm -hmm. and about what we need to do to fix the harm that they've caused in the here and now. They've stolen the court. They've overturned Roe. They've undermined our democracy and expanding the court as our only shot at rebalancing the system and regaining those rights. A world where people do the right things. That's crazy talk, Sarah. Uh, (laughs) Now, it it would, of course, uh, require changing the filibuster rules again in the U.S. Senate in order to do this, to pass this bill over on the Senate side, just as Mitch McConnell did to pack Trump's uh, three nominees onto the court in the first place with a simple majority vote. But... There are no such barriers in the Democratic-led U.S. House. Why haven't the Democrats put this bill up for a vote in the House today? Do you have any idea, especially after after the uh, destruction that we've all witnessed by the court at the end of its last term? Look, I, I think a lot of people were actually shocked by what the court did at the end of this term, that they're shocked mm-hmm. um, that the court overturned Roe and acted in this absolutely maximalist way. And it's taking them some time to wrap their heads around it and to grapple with what to do. You know, should they have been shocked? I would say we've known for years mm-hmm. that this was coming. Right. Uh, we even saw a leaked draft of the decision a month in advance. Mm-hmm. Overturning Roe, banning abortion, that's been a central goal of the right for over 50 years. It's why they stole a Supreme Court seat and rushed to fill another. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there's this there's this desire, this hope um, that the court isn't going to be as absolutely extreme um, as it clearly is. And things like this are going to keep happening as long as this right-wing majority controls the court. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's not so much a question, um, of if our leaders will support court expansion, but Mm -hmm. it's a question of when, uh, and whether that support comes in time to strengthen democracy and protect the rights of all Americans. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they can't see it now, I don't know when they would see the, the need for it. Uh, if it did come up, if, if, uh, I guess Nancy Pelosi allowed this to come up for a vote in the House, uh, would it? Do, do you have any sense? Does your group have any sense? Would it have the votes for passage right now? Uh, you know, just among Democrats, or is that one of the reasons why it hasn't come up for a vote? I think there is a growing realization every day, both with every decision that this court makes, and every day the way that the impacts are felt around the country that this court is out of control. 
it's unhinged and something needs to be done to rein it in. Right? This isn't going to stop until Congress stops it. Yeah. It's real, it's happening, and we have to take this right-wing authoritarian movement's attacks on our democracy and on our rights as seriously as they do. Uh, you know, I'm tr- has the bill even uh, received any committee hearings or markups? I, there was, you know, a number of uh, speakers, uh, members of Congress who spoke passionately about it on Monday. Um, but it, it seems like what's going on in Congress does not match that passion. Uh, has this bill uh, gone through committee at all? The passion from members at this Monday press conference was really overwhelming, and I think, you know, you, you see that reflected also in communities and among activists, and they're mm-hmm. really reflecting that back to us. Um, the bill, while it's been growing in co-sponsors, uh, has not received a, a hearing or a markup yet. Now, in Washington, D.C., you know, a great way to make sure that nothing actually happens on any particular issue, of course, is to create a bipartisan blue ribbon presidential commission to examine the issue. President Biden, uh, an institutionalist himself, a longtime chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, who, at least upon taking office, said he does not favor expansion of the court. He enacted such a commission. Uh, what were their findings and recommendations? And as far as you can tell, has the administration's position changed on this, either after that commission or after what we saw from the court uh, last month? You know, I think the most interesting thing about the commission is the effect that it had on commissioners. Um, so, you know, as you said, this commission was created to study the issues mm-hmm. over six months. Meanwhile, this crisis is, is happening and, and growing in our country. Um, but the commission was full of people who had not taken a position on expansion before and, frankly, were really skeptical about it. Mm. You know, institutionalists at heart, mm-hmm. law professors, former federal judges, um, they came into this process, a number of them, thinking no reforms were necessary and, you know, maybe maybe something at the margins. They studied it for more than six months intensely. They came out of it completely committed to Supreme Court expansion, completely believing that it is absolutely the necessary step that we need to take to save our democracy and to save the legitimacy of the court. A number of commissioners kind of went through that um, evolution and that process. And it's mm-hmm. the same thing that we see as we, you know, work to ed- educate other folks about these issues. You know, we were all, or many of us, kind of raised up in this system that presented this fiction about the court, right? That it's just some kind of idealized, like, fantasized mm-hmm. body that exists outside of politics, and they put on, you know, their robes, and it makes them, you know, magically um, rational and, and committed to reason. Uh, and as we've been pulling away that fiction, right, as we've been kind of pulling back the curtain mm-hmm. on the way that this current court is operating, has been manipulated to be full of ideologues and extremists who undermine our democratic institutions, as we do that education work, more and more people come to see that Supreme Court expansion is what is needed to restore the court's legitimacy. The the people are saying it, but that's why I'm asking so many questions about, uh, you know, even Democrats in the House, in the White House. Uh, you know, clearly the polls are showing the people get it. Their confidence has dropped to all-time lows in the courts. So it's it's difficult to 
understand why Joe Biden himself, uh, where he is, his own commission comes back and says, yeah, this does need to be expanded. Do you uh, is there any sense at all? I know he's got a lot on, on his plate and now he's got covid. But do you get any sense from the administration that there is a change in Biden's position, at least since the overturning of Roe, when it comes to the court, expanding the court? I mean, I think we've seen since Roe was overturned barely, mm-hmm. barely four weeks ago mm-hmm. um, in the Dobbs decision, um, the administration, you know, start to kind of catch up piece by piece really to the enormity um, of what has happened and the enormity um, of what that means uh, in people's lives across the country uh, and take, you know, increasingly new steps um, to respond to that in terms of abortion rights. When it comes to the Supreme Court, when it comes to expansion, I, this is only headed in one direction. The conservative ideologues on the court are only going to get more radical. They're only going to get more unhinged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think leaders can lead or they can try to play catch up later after mm-hmm. countless people have been irreparably harmed. And that's really the situation well, that we're in. Yeah, I think it is. And I mentioned uh, uh, previously this uh, effort that is going on, uh, you know, sort of being led by uh, Josh Marshall and Talking Points Memo to get the Democratic senators on record that they will, uh, you know, vote to overturn. Well, they will vote to reform the filibuster and then overturn Roe in January if they are given two more Democrats uh, this November, since uh, Senators Manchin and Cinema have already said they will not, for, by any reason, you know, uh, reform the filibuster. Is, is there a similar push, or should there be, by your group, by others, to get commitments from Democrats to do exactly that if they're able to pick up two more seats? Again, as sort of a, a pact, a promise with voters you know, let us give us two more seats in the in the Senate. Let us continue the majority in the House and we will give you this in return. That seems to make a lot of sense on an issue as critical as this one. We're working every day. Our partners are working every day to make that case, to make clear that court expansion is absolutely necessary if we're going to protect the fundamental rights of the American people. You know, the American people don't want to live in some kind of 1800s fever dream that Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas cooked up, right? Living under the control of this court, it's not tenable. It's not sustainable. It's not going to stand. And eventually we are going to get there. I should add, with respect to the question about abortion and codifying abortion rights, Congress absolutely needs to lift the filibuster and pass a law establishing a federal right to abortion. But also, mm-hmm. that law will end up in front of the Supreme Court. Yep. And the court's right wing has made it absolutely clear how hostile it is both to abortion rights and to Congress's authority. And so the only way we're truly going to protect abortion rights is if we both codify it into federal law and reform the court itself and disempower this right-wing majority by expanding and balancing the court. Finally, uh, Sarah lipton I and this may sort of be a rhetorical question, uh, but while I understand the the corporate media sort of adopting the right-wing framing on pretty much every issue there is, I've actually heard Democrats describe this as, you know, describe expanding the court as 
packing the court. I see it as unpacking a court that's already been stolen and packed. So I guess my question here is, and again, sort of rhetorical, but if we can even get Democrats to frame this issue correctly, is there any hope that the corporate media will start using the appropriate and frankly accurate word, just the neutral expanding the court would do in order to describe what your group and so many others are calling for here? Uh, well, I, I agree with, with every every word of your rhetorical question. I'll say, you know, some people ask me, I, a bunch of people ask me, is expanding the court radical? And I and I think that is kind of along the along the same lines as as what you were saying. And I have to say, in this moment that we're in, expanding the court is actually the least radical thing we could do right now. Mm. We're talking about passing a piece of legislation to set the size of the court as contemplated in the Constitution. It's literally Congress's job to do this. <laughs> when we have six unelected extremists casting aside all norms, all precedent, ignoring the rule of law to catapult us back to the Dark Ages, I, what could possibly be more measured and reasonable than court expansion? Sarah Lipton Lubet is the executive director of Take Back the Court. You can find and support their efforts at takebackthecourt.today. Takebackthecourt.today. You can also follow them on the Twitters at takebackthect. And of course, you can follow uh, Sarah on the Twitters as well at Lipton Lubet. Sarah Lipton Lubet, really appreciate you joining us today. I know you're a little bit under the weather. Hope you feel better. And thank you for being here today. Thanks so much, Brad. You bet. All right. Well, you know, I got to tell you, when uh, was it Mark uh, Joseph Stern a month or so ago, Mm -hmm. right after the uh, overturning of Roe? You know, we sort of discussed, I think I asked him the question, hey, have, have, have we been uh, too alarmist or not alarmist enough over the years yeah. when talking about what was coming down the road, what we knew that this court would be doing as we could see it being packed? I think his uh, his quip was, uh, we have been just uh, alarmist uh, enough. Just alarmist enough. Uh, I don't know if we have been alarmist enough because all of these things, we've seen them coming. We've warned about them. Then they come. Then everyone is all uh, scrambling you know, ups- to respond upset about it. Guess. But they're not scrambling to respond. That's the thing. Mm. You know, they don't seem to be kicking into gear, into action. Uh, you know, the fact that it takes a talking points memo, that, you know, to organize this campaign, to even get a commitment from the 48 sitting Democratic senators who aren't Manchin or Cinema, that they, yes, will reform the filibuster in order to codify Roe, that they have to work so hard to get that sort of a commitment, that we have to work so hard to, you know, even bring up a bill like expanding the court at this point after all that we have seen from this court you know i don't think democrats are are evil and that they you know want things to remain terrible i think they're just wake up you know i just i I, the geriatric yeah yeah, the geriatric leadership of the democratic party has done a great job of holding stuff together but i think they're just way too stuck in the past to recognize the danger that is before us right now and the necessity of expanding the court before it is too late 
And it's already too late. Well, yes, that but I mean said, before, yeah, before no, it becomes something that yeah. can never, ever, ever be dislodged. Right, which we could see as early as October when the court is set to look at the independent state legislature doctrine, which may kill democracy as we know it in this country. Um, and you know, I... I, I <laughs> We keep mentioning things like this and people say, oh, you're crazy. That'll never happen. And then, of course, it does. So uh, pay yeah. attention. And if the Democrats aren't going to wake up, then let's wake them up. All right. Speaking of not waking up in time to save us. Quick break. And we're back with Desi Doyen <laughs> and the latest Green News report. <laughs> That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, at the top of the show, Desi Doyen, yes. I described, uh, I, I teased our upcoming, I called it Grim Green News Report. <laughs> yes. Should we just change it to Grim News no. Report at this point? No, because sure? sometimes positive good things do happen, so we have to focus on what all of the news is, not just the bad news. I guess so. You know, most shows, you know, at the top of the show, they don't tease this uh, the, the grim news coming up later. They talk about, <laughs> you know, we'll have uh, pictures of pandas and cuddly coming up later. Not yeah. us. Nope. Truth in advertising here on the broadcast, which brings us to our latest grim news report. We're already committed to a level of warming, and these extremes will get more extreme in the future. Cascading consequences are piling up. Scientists warn it will get worse. Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. EU warns member nations to conserve gas as Russia tightens its grip. Plus, climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. Biden announces plans for executive actions to tackle climate change. All of those plans and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It's not just Europe, because over 100 million people in the U.S. are under heat alerts. In fact, this week, nearly 20% of the U.S. population will likely see a temperature at or above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Remember when you wished that everybody who denied climate change would go to hell? <laughs> Unfortunately, hell came to us. Welcome to hell, or as we like to call it, your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, rough week 
for the Green News Report. Yes, extreme heat continues to engulf vast regions of the Northern Hemisphere. In the United States, more than 100 million Americans across 28 states remain in the grip of a sprawling, record-setting heat wave. Officials in Europe, where air conditioning is rare, are scrambling to provide cooling options amid a rising death toll. The intense, prolonged heat shattered records in the United Kingdom, with temperatures surpassing 104 degrees Fahrenheit for the first time on record, a temperature once thought inconceivable, with the heat helping to spark and spread hundreds of wildfires around the country. The U.K. Met Office concludes the new record would be virtually impossible without man-made global warming. Chief Scientist Professor Stephen Belcher delivered a stark warning. Climate change driven by greenhouse gases has made these extreme temperatures possible, and we're actually seeing that possibility now. If we continue under a high emission scenario, we could see temperatures like this every three years. I think it's going to be more than every three years. Cascading consequences from the relentless heat go beyond deaths, wildfires, and crop failures. In Germany, the Rhine River is becoming too shallow to allow ships to transit. In France and Switzerland, several nuclear power plants are offline or at reduced power because the rivers used to cool the reactors are too hot. Skyrocketing energy demand is exacerbating Europe's energy supply crunch caused by Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, the European Commission on Wednesday said that Russia is weaponizing its natural gas exports to Europe to divide the coalition and warned that Russia might further reduce or cut off gas deliveries on a key Russian pipeline. Officials urged member countries to immediately begin reducing natural gas consumption now to fill up gas storage faster to prevent shortages this winter. Not good. Here in the U.S., after major setbacks from the right-wing Supreme Court curtailing EPA authority over carbon pollution and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia again derailing President Biden's climate and clean energy agenda in Congress. The president unveiled plans to enact a suite of actions to tackle the climate crisis using executive authority. Sweet. Speaking at a decommissioned coal plant being converted into a wind energy manufacturing hub, Biden stopped short of declaring a national climate emergency, which would redirect federal resources resources to bolster renewable energy and help accelerate the shift away from fossil fuels. Biden criticized Republicans for their decades of blocking climate policy and pledged many more actions to come. I come here today with a message. As president, I have a responsibility to act with urgency and resolve when our nation faces clear and present danger. And that's what climate change is about. It is literally not figuratively a clear and present danger. The health of our citizens and our communities is literally at stake. So let me be clear. Climate change is an emergency. I will do everything in my power. Clean our air and water. Protect our people's health. To win the clean energy future. This, again, sounds like hyperbole. Our children and grandchildren are counting on us. Initial actions will include directing billions in funding to help communities adapt to climate impacts like extreme heat, storms, fires, and floods, assistance to states to boost electric grid stability, weatherization, and building energy efficiency, expanding programs to help low-income families afford heating and cooling costs, and opening up new areas in the Gulf of Mexico to offshore wind production.
Now remember, while this summer is hot, it will be one of the coldest summers we'll ever experience for the rest of our lifetimes. You just had to finish it on that cheery note, didn't you? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today or didn't have the heart to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. It's too hot, too hot, too hot, lady. Gotta cool this anger. What a mess we made. We certainly have. Oh, yes. Told you it was grim. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. I understand, by the way, uh, that the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, is that the one? Nord Stream 1 or 2? It was Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 2 has never started. So Nord Stream 1 is the primary Russian pipeline that feeds uh, natural gas to Europe. And it was down for maintenance. As you mentioned there, it was down for a while. Yes, it was. And it has been put back into service now. And European leaders were very scared that it would not come back online at all. All. That Russia wouldn't turn it back on. Correct. Right? Uh, the, but but they have. And so, uh, you know, they were definitely, uh, the Russians were definitely giving the European leaders uh, some squirming time. Mm-hmm. But it's back on. But it's only at about 60% of its uh, pre-war volume. Mm. So Russia had already been reducing capacity. They are reducing it even more. And, of course, at any moment, they could cut Just it off. Just cut it off. Yes. Yep. You know, it would be nice if they cut off their attack on Ukraine. Yes, that too. We'd love to see a a ceasefire there and end this madness. Yes. Anyway, speaking of ending this madness, it's time (laughs) for us to get out of here. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, once again, and to our guest today, Sarah Lipton-Lubet of TakeBackTheCourt.Today. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And I want to thank those folks who have stopped by for our de facto summer fun drive, uh, who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to make either one-time donations or to sign up for a subscription. Since I had mentioned recently, we lost a few subscribers as uh, the economy has taken a a turn. Uh, Thanks to those of you who have so far stepped up to uh, fill that gap. It is greatly appreciated at bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Special coverage of primetime uh, public hearing number eight of the January 6th committee on our next Bradcast. I hope you will join us for that. Until then, thank you for joining us today. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, it's too hot, too hot. Hot lady, gotta run for shelter, gotta run for shade. It's too hot, too hot, too hot lady. Gotta cool this anger from this mess that we made. It's too hot, too hot, lady. Gotta run for shelter, gotta run for shade. It's too hot.